0: To Skyline, we're so excited you're here this morning. And um, I, I don't usually do this, but this morning's a, a, a special morning with a, a topic that we're going to cover that just felt like it needed a little bit of an intro and a prayer uh, to start with. So, um, just a little bit of context: about three or four weeks ago, Annie and I were invited to a uh, breakfast at the governor's house to talk about uh, the Tulsa race massacre and about the church's response to it, and um, and if you don't know anything about Skyline, you may not know that that's been a, a real part of our church's story the whole time uh, we've been going. I think the second meeting I ever attended at Skyline with a group of people uh, was about racial reconciliation with Greg and with Trent Ward and some other friends. Um, and so this morning, Greg's going to get up here and preach. <laughs> and here, here's just my heart and our heart for you is that in the midst of such a divisive, difficult topic, um, we're going to ask you today to open your heart to the Holy Spirit, to what he has to say to the church. I love it. The Bible says, let, let the churches <laughs> have an ear to hear what the Spirit's saying. And so I'm going to pray for Greg real quick, and he's going to get up. And I just want you to know, like, I, I mean, we were a weepy mess in our prayer time before this. So it's going to get thick in here, and it's going to get real. And I think God's going to do some stuff. So um, I'm going to pray. Uh, So if you would join me, Jesus, we love you. We love you, we love you, we love you, we love you. And we're so grateful that on the cross, you put the powers and principalities to shame. And so Lord, today we ask that you would manifest your love for all human beings in this room. And that ah, that your Holy Spirit would rest on Greg, speak through him. Lord, I pray against every argument. We just, in this spirit, demolish every argument that sets itself up against the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus today. And I pray, Lord, that you would do a work that would forever change our hearts and might be seeds that could see an entire city and state renewed. So we love you, Jesus. Have your way today with us. In your name, amen, amen.
1: We have been uh, bouncing around a little bit through uh, 1 Timothy, and uh, so I did want to tie back into 1 Timothy what what, uh, Jonathan did at the governor's mansion, because basically what what he was asking for was was for prayer um, as we uh, move into uh, what will be next week, the 100-year mark of the Tulsa Race Massacre. So uh, 1 Timothy 2, starting with verse 1, says, First of all, then I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man of Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. When we talk about race... A lot of times, just there are some triggers and some buzzwords, and dividing lines get drawn, and labels get placed, debates replace discussion, and seeking to understand cowers to simply winning an argument. I have learned over the last couple weeks that words matter. You can say a word, and immediately a wall goes up. So... The prayer, as Jonathan prayed, is just the walls would come down and we would listen to not Greg, but the Holy Spirit. So I asked that his mind be my mind and his mouth be my mouth. Race is again once uh, th- thrust into the forefront of our local news. Obviously, it's been a part of it for the last uh, year or two Longer than that, but uh, in, in major ways to the point where we have a global pandemic that nobody was paying attention to because of all the things that th- they were paying attention to it, but dominating the news headlines was what was happen- happening between um, white officers and, and uh, black people. So I'm going to tread a little lightly, um, but I believe it's an important conversation for the church to have. Because I believe it is so closely tied to the kingdom of God and ultimately the gospel. So, as we've said, next, next uh, Sunday will mark 100 years since the Tulsa race riot or massacre, depending on maybe which side of the equation you fall But on the morning of May 30th, 1921, a young black man named Derek Rowland, he was riding in an elevator. (coughs) We need to not do this. So everybody pray that Dewey's not weepy, okay? Um, He's riding in an elevator in downtown Tulsa with a white woman named Sarah Page. The details that followed vary from person to person. Accounts of an incident circulated among the city's white community during that day and became ever more exaggerated with each retelling of the story. Roland was arrested and violence erupted. This is what we see. 24 hours after the violence began, it was over. 35 city blocks lay in absolute ruin. More than 800 people were treated for injuries, and contemporary reports back in the day reported that there were around 36 deaths. Historians believe today that there were closer to 300. Yet this was the headline. In addition to the 100-year mark, races again in the uh in the news with house bill 1775 right it became very uh divisive and polarizing if you don't know what that house bill was if you weren't following it it basically it was saying that no race can be taught is more superior than another race. And on its face seems pretty logical, right, that we that we might agree with that. But it's become extremely divisive because even though the words critical race theory are never mentioned in the bill, actually advocates and dissenters alike admit that it likely, <laughs> it is a response to what was happening nationally. That there were... Now, eight different states who have basically said critical race theory cannot be taught in public schools. Now, critical race theory didn't begin in academia. It actually began in the 1970s as a response to the Civil Rights Movement. There were things that were happening long after the Civil Rights, laws that had been passed but weren't being upheld. Black people were not getting their due and so critical race theory began with a group of lawyers to say, this isn't right. How can we stand up and fight against it? Now, obviously, it's, it's come into academia now. And discussion points, are although these are not the core tenets, discussion points that come up with critical race theory are uh, white privilege, white fragility, affirmative action, reparations, What they really want is accurate storytelling, accurate history being taught. Each one of these talking points has its own set of nuances. It will include things like intersectionality. You'll hear that word talked about quite a bit. This is where one person might be um, identified in a couple of different areas that have been shown prejudice or segregation like black woman right, intersectionality, there's multiple things. But it starts with the idea of oppressed oppressor. Like many topics, when discussing critical race theory, we do again have to realize, A, there's nuances, and B, it continues to evolve, depending on who you talk to. They won't be, sh- if they're passionate about it, they won't be short to tell you whether they think it's good or bad, when in all likelihood there's some positive and maybe some not so positives. But unfortunately, many Christians, and that's our audience, that's my assumption today. If that's not you, you just get to listen into to a family conversation. Unfortunately, many Christians fly past the nuances, and they choose their corner often based on political lines. Diametrically opposed to anybody who may disagree even before seeking to understand. And most importantly, seeking to understand from another person's perspective. If this is the first time you've heard critical race theory, my guess is it will not be the last. I have much to learn and ears to listen. What I am convinced about after the last month of studying this (laughs) is that we do need to be critical in our thinking about all topics without being critical. Brian Stevens, who has a a great TED talk uh, on race, says, we're all burdened by our history of racial inequality. It's created a smog that we all breathe in and it has prevented us from being healthy. See, people come at the topic of race from all kinds of different angles history, politics, ethnicity, pain. But as a Jesus follower, we come to any topic through the lens of Scripture, and and even more importantly, through the lens of the Gospel of Jesus. There are many in the church who, I believe, are unaware of just how central. Racial reconciliation is to the gospel. They see racial matters as secular, political, maybe even sociological. But this is kingdom core curriculum, and it has been from day one. I am certainly no expert on the topic. And that's maybe one of the the benefits of white privilege, right? I haven't had to deal with it much. Until, when there's a long pause, you pray, okay? Get it together. Get a phone call. The mock Resources had just started uh, about four years ago. My wife is crying and mad, which are usually, <laughs> usually two things that don't go well together for me. Um. So I'm like, okay, here we go. I actually think I was in your office, Clay, uh, your first office, up on the third floor. I stepped out because I knew this might not go well. Um, so she said, I'm standing outside the car uh, at the YMCA in Edmond. Um, she had been working out. They had this little daycare so she could work out. Twins could play. This is four years ago. My twins are eight now. Uh, for those of you who don't know them, they're black. Um, and so they're four at the time. And she says, uh, Ike was walking out and he was a little teary and said that somebody wasn't very nice to him. She goes, what do you mean somebody wasn't very nice to you? She said, there was a boy there who said that me and my brother can't play with them because my skin is too dark. Call it white, white fragility or fragility. All I can tell you is I was fragile and broken. I hadn't had to deal with that before. So I had to call my buddy who had. I called Waylon. He talked me off the ledge, got me to turn around from heading towards the YMCA in Edmond. Gave me some great advice. Gave me some books to read, articles uh, to read, podcasts to start listening to. And so since then I've I've started to uh, listen, I won't say devour, listen to a a, a lot of different things uh, on race. So I stand up here today, and I know, by the way, some of you knew that I was going to talk about this. You've emailed me some some good things to read and some uh, uh, podcasts to listen to. For those of you who have done that, I I sincerely say thank you. So I stand up here today as a a result of those articles and podcasts, right? I stand up here with people like Brian Loritz, who is a pastor in uh, Durham, North Carolina, he's a teaching pastor at Summit Church, African-American pastor. He's fantastic. He, uh, I've drawn a lot of this out of him. Brian Stevens, who I've already quoted, uh, is somebody that I would encourage you, if you want to lean into this topic a little bit more, those are two good voices uh, to listen to. Systemic racism. Again, that was my first kind of real experience with it. I know, again, I've already said that buzzwords can trigger certain things. I think we... I won't make an assumption that we've moved past systemic racism being divisive in the church, but I think we've made progress, so I'm going to talk about that just a little bit. Call it systemic racism or systemic sin. Either way, it is that wrongdoing and or evil that over time has crept into or more usually been built into the structures of society. There's a book written uh, that I would recommend called Divided by Faith. Written by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. They're two white sociologists that set out to expose a race problem in the evangelical church. This is a fairly new book. Maybe I I won't tell you what year it was. But this is one of the things that they said. White evangelicals tend to see sin in more personal terms and not systemic ones. Despite the fact that, of course, the Bible that we read is full of systemic sin and systemic racism. It's all throughout the Bible. There's stories of the oppressed and the oppressor. Israel was enslaved by Egypt. They were captives of Babylon and Assyria. They were bullied by the Philistines, all just because of their ethnicity. Christianity is certainly no stranger to oppression as they were immediately oppressed by Nero from Rome. Systemic racism or prejudice or sin, whatever you want to call it, is woven into the fabric of the fall of humanity. Seems fairly logical to me that when you get a group of sinners together to build systems, those systems are going to be tainted with sin. We see this again in Exodus from the very beginning of the Bible, right? Pharaoh sets up this system of taking out, uh, telling the midwives to kill the Hebrew babies. Systemic sin. King Herod did the same thing in attempt to kill the Messiah. This is not just an individual sin. This is systemic sin like Nazi Germany in Amos. God rebukes Israel for having unbalanced scales as it related to defrauding the poor. Zacchaeus in Luke 19, we see a system, systemic system of sin and abuse and fraud with the way that taxes were collected. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 21, he turns over tables in the temple. Yes, in part because he's upset at the commercialization of God's house, but he's also fighting the racism of his day. Who cares where the Gentiles get to worship, right? We'll go ahead and set up our T-shirt stands and cotton candy right in the middle of it where they're trying to worship because the temple, they had four different courts. The, The outer court was the court for the Gentiles, right? It's the only place that they could worship, yet all this commotion was going on where they were supposed to be worshiping God, and Jesus, as he's flipping over the tables, quotes from the prophet Jeremiah, says, my house shall be a house of prayer for what? For all nations. Archaeology actually found in the 1800s, the wall that separated the court of the Gentiles. And on that was this sign. And I can't read it, and I would guess that most of you can't either. It in It basically says if you are not Jewish, do not proceed past this sign or it could result in death. Death. Because somebody who was born in a different place, maybe have a different pigment of skin, might go past a dividing wall. So, how about America? Don't have to look very far, do we? We're an easy target. The way we treated Native Americans, slavery, after that, Jim Crow laws that lasted from the late 1800s all the way up to 1965, folks. That's not very long ago. I think it's important to admit that, ra- that, that slavery did not begin in America. Slavery has been around since the beginning of time. Slavery is not over. There are 40 million Women in the sex trade, slavery today across our world. One million of them right here in the United States of America. Also, we see slavery didn't end with emancipation, right? There's a great book called Slavery by Another Name that just talks about the convict leasing that took place, right? Get this. A black man could be walking across the street Arrested for jaywalking. Charged a steep fine that they knew he couldn't pay. So the way that he paid it off is they were sold to the railroads in most cases. Do you realize that almost every railroad in the south was built by convict leasing? Slavery by another name. Another book I recommend, The Color of Law. Talks about housing in the U.S. and reverse redlining. Two different things, maybe too small to read. The first one, the federal government pursued two important policies in the mid-20th century, again not very long ago, that segregated metropolitan areas. One was the first civilian public housing program which frequently demolished integrated neighborhoods in order to create segregated housing. Do you hear that? Black and white neighborhoods. Tear them down. Let's build out Section 8 housing. They didn't call it back then, but that's what they meant. And let's put all of the minorities right there. The second program, that the federal government, this is the federal government. A lot of times people say, well, no, this is just a personal sin. There's no systemic sin. Really? The government decided to have a program that would subsidize the development of suburbs on this condition that it would only be sold to white families and that the homes in the suburbs had deeds that prohibited resale to African Americans. This is our government. These two policies work together to segregate metropolitan areas in ways that otherwise would never have been segregated. I told you about Brian Laris, teaching pastor. He's about my age, maybe a little younger. Uh, right before he got married, he's African American. He married a, a girl who was, as he says, half Irish, half Mexican, all fine. Those are his words, not mine. <laughs> and so you couldn't really tell what she was, but he, uh, they were looking for an apartment about two or three months before they got married in Pasadena, California. Looking for a house. Brian goes in, meets with the landlord. She kind of looks him up and down and says, I'm going to need six months' rent before you would move in. He thought that was a little obsessive. So he went home to his then-fiancé and says, why don't you go back? So she goes back, meets with the exact same landlord who looks her up and down and says, all I'll need is the first and last month's rent. That's within the last two decades. Maybe the saddest fact is that the church is far from innocent. In the north, in Philadelphia in the late 1700s, Richard Allen and his black friends had the audacity to pray in the whites-only section of the church. Some white church members were so enraged that they walked over they couldn't even wait until they were done praying. And they picked them up off their knees and threw them out into the street. Within two weeks, all the black members had left the church. They bought an old blacksmith shop. And then started what became the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the first black denomination in the United States. This set off an avalanche of black denominations in reaction to the white church setting up up walls of hostility. It's a sobering truth that the black church only exists because the white church advocated our role of being the church. Things in the South, as you could predict, even worse. Dr. Samuel Cartwright, who was a physician and an elder at a church, but he would go around and teach all throughout the South, taught that Black people were among the already created living creatures. Adam and Eve were supposed to rule over them. These pre-Adamite natural slaves inhabited the land of Nod, he taught, where Cain ventured after his banishment. Cain then intermarried with blacks, black slaves of Nod. This racial mixing supposedly, as this, their story goes, so angered God that he just destroyed that he determined to destroy them with a flood. Black people were taken on the ark alongside other animals, and who did Dr. Cartwright cast as their overseer? Ham, Noah's son. Curse for disobeying Noah, he taught. God cursed Ham's descendants into eternal black skin and slavery. Folks, this was taught in the church. Jefferson Davis, a U.S. Senator from Mississippi, argued from the Senate floor that the government, this government, was not founded by Negroes nor for Negroes, but by white men for white men. Senator Davis actually shared a shorter version of this land of Nod to his colleagues on April 12, 1860 in the U.S. Capitol. And he said this, when Cain, for the commission of his great first crime, was driven from the face of Adam, no longer fit to associate with whites who were to, created to exercise dominion over the earth. This is one of our senators. Recited this story after confidently proclaiming to his peers, listen, the inequality of white and black races was, quote, stamped from the very beginning, unquote. Racial inequality is, quote, the will of God, Unquote. As marked, he goes on to say, "in decreed and prophecy, and confirmed by history." If those things are being talked about and taught from the Senate floor—the very people who create systems and laws. Would you at least admit that it's plausible that sin has tainted our systems? Is at least plausible. Stamped from the beginning not just the beginning of human history, but the the beginning of American history. The average white family has a net worth that is 10 times greater than the average black family. That's just a fact. Tom sent me a video. I don't even know how many years ago it was. Now the, the house we live in, 10 years probably. Talks about the different penalties among many things, the different penalties between crack and powder cocaine. Crack, predominantly a drug used by African-Americans, powder cocaine, typically used by whites. The difference, ten times when it came to prison sentence, ten times. So affirmative action came along, another controversial topic, may cause some of you to twitch just a little bit, but they've made attempts to level the playing field over the years and certainly have been met with criticism from people like me. In 1996, uh, shortly after, I think it was 92 or 93, that Alicia's sister moved from Indiana where we were at to Wichita. And Wichita State had a volleyball coaching position come open. So I applied. I got to meet with everybody. And I was chosen by the athletic director to coach volleyball at Wichita State. We were excited, celebratory, thinking about, okay, we got to sell the house. we got to do all these different things. I get a call the next day. And they say, you know what, I'm sorry. Uh, Affirmative action turns you down. I wasn't extremely pleased at the time, may have cried a little bit, thought it was unfair. What I was unaware of and naive to was the fact that I had been a part of a system, an unfair system that had been set up for centuries. And if I am aware naive of systemic racism, then I'm not going to appreciate what it is that affirmative action is trying to accomplish. And so as white people, like I did, sometimes you think, well, that's not, that's not fair, and I was upset. And the question for me and the question for you is, should whites really be upset about this premise of targeting certain people for certain jobs? Because if so, we've been doing that since the beginning of America. What kind of person was targeted or, or who could be president, only be president? <laughs> in 1865? What, what kind of person could only play in the major leagues in baseball in 1909? What kind of person could only vote in 1920? Targeting people kind of sounds like affirmative action to me. Wayland, my buddy that I've already referred to, he tells a story about football. He says, I want you to imagine this. Imagine two teams are playing. One team has all the gear on, cleats, pads, helmets, and they're playing against a team who doesn't have any of that. And they play the first half, and all the calls go towards the way of the team who has the equipment. And at halftime, the score is 50 to 0, and the referees come in and they say, you know what? This has been a grave disservice. We're extremely sorry. We're going to give you a shoulder pad so it's a a level playing field now. and, And we're going to call things that are now more equal. Are we good? I ask you, Skyline, are we good? Well, no, we're not good. It's 50 to zero. So what do we have to do? We may have to slant things the other way for a little while. may not be fair, but neither was the the whole first half. All this is true. Black-white relations, we've got issues. But is it the root of the problem? See, while we have real issues among blacks and whites in America, We have them between blacks and Mexicans, whites and Mexicans. We've seen recently what has happened to Asian Americans. Are you following what's happening in the news in New York City right now? To the Jews in New York City? All because of something that's happening around the pond between Palestine and Israel. And it's come over here and we've decided to beat people up for being Jewish. not a skin pigment it's not about skin pigment not only the Hutu and the Tutsis in Rwanda in 1994 fairly recent 800,000 to a million people died because of tribes same color so what's the real problem It's hostility between humans. That's the real issue. Hostility between humans. Where does hostility begin? Satan. The key oppressor. So what do we do about it? Well, the primary way the world has attempted to destroy hostility has been with punishment. How has that worked for us? Created more hostility, right? Can't punish our way to peace. The only answer is love. bathed in repentance and forgiveness. Again, this is deeper than a black-white thing. This is a hostility issue. Don't hear what I'm not saying I do believe that black and white and the issues as it's related there is a topic of our generation that we must deal deal with as a Christian community. we must. But if we just settle from that, for that we'll never get to the root, and then there'll be another thing and another thing and another wall of hostility. But to rid ourselves, we must cut it at the root, right? Which is simply means to stop a larger problem by aiming at the source. Paul understood this as well as anybody, and he gave us the solution 2,000 years ago. when he explained to us the gospel, right? The beautiful gospel, I don't know anywhere where it's more clearly, maybe 1 Corinthians 15. But if you want a broader one, it's Ephesians chapter 2. The whole chapter. Ephesians chapter 2. I didn't write it down, so I'm going to have to cheat. But at the very beginning of Ephesians, it talks about that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. And once we all walked, right, following the course of, of this world I means the world is trying to push us in a particular direction of systemic sin because of the key oppressor, which is Satan, right? Which goes on to say, following the prince of the power of the air. The prince, the person who has jurisdiction over a certain domain. Let me ask you: if you were the prince over the air. You would have a lot of reach, wouldn't you? John, it, Paul's not the only one. Jesus is quoted by John three times in between like 12 and 14 of, of his, the gospel of John. John also calls Satan the prince of the air. Means he has a domain it's under Jesus's, yes. It's under the Father, yes, It's under the Holy Spirit. Yes, but He has a domain that is far-reaching, and we should not be naive. He goes on, and then, of course, we know, we, every Christian, if you grew up in church, for it is by what that we've been saved. It's by grace you have been saved through. Faith, right? Not by works. So none of us is allowed to boast, right? All of us have had a firm, affirmative action. Affirmative action sometimes says we're going to give a scholarship to him because of his color of his skin, right? Nothing that he did. He can't boast about it. He just got the scholarship because of the color of his skin. Guess what? We have affirmative action. Jesus says you've been saved, not because of anything you did, but because who you are and who I am and the fact that I love you. Thank God for affirmative action. A lot of us stop with the gospel in Ephesians, right after for by grace you've been saved, right? Not by works so that no man can boast. For you are God's piece of art to do good works. Period. That's the gospel. Is that it? In my Bible, I guess in your Bible, it probably has a little subheading, separating this from that, and we do the same thing in our mind. Okay, the gospel's over. These two things are separated. The The stream of thought from Paul is not over at this point. He goes on into 11. He goes on into uh, 12. And then we get to verse 13. But now, some of my favorite words in the whole Bible. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both. Who's both? Jew and Gentile made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing walls of hostility. That's what the cross did. Can we agree? Do you, don't agree with me. Do you think that Paul is saying this is what the cross did? This is yes, this is no. Do you believe that? So it's part of the gospel. It's part of the gospel. This isn't a new stream of thought. He's he's transitioning just like a cross. There's the vertical part of the gospel to the horizontal part of the gospel, both a part of the cross. See, we've lived through what happened in America in the early 1900s with the fundamentalist movement, right? Where the fundamentalists came in and they said, no, the gospel, the gospel is about this beam of the cross It's about one's vertical relationship. Pray the prayer, raise the hand, walk the aisle, open your Bibles, get out four colors of highlighters, and learn, learn, learn. That's what the fundamentalist would say. Some have called this the great divorce because the modernist came along and said, no, 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 no. The gospel, the gospel is horizontal. It's about love of neighbor. It's about social justice. It was the modernists, not the fundamentalists, who marched in Birmingham. But the modernists, too, fell into error because they didn't have truth that anchored them. See, it's not an either-or. Jesus made it clear and said, do two things. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And just like that, with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And strength, love your neighbor. That's how John can say this. How can you skyline? How can you claim to love God who you can't see while you hate your brother who you can't see? No, 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 wait a minute. Greg, don't don't tell me I'm racist. I don't hate my brother. I don't hate my friend uh, of, of another race, Ray Vanderlyn, great Gentile Jewish scholar, he would say, hate has nothing to do with ill will. To the Jew, that's not what hate is about. That's why Jesus can say in Matthew chapter 10 that you are to ha- you know love God and it ought to seem like this hating of mother and father if you're going to come after me, right? You remember that part? just means you've got to be willing to be separate from your mother and father in order to follow me. So so what John is claiming here is how can you claim to love God when you are separated, different meaning now, from your brother. John is saying that a hateful Christian is an oxymoron just like Jesus said in Matthew 18 that an unforgiving Christian is an oxymoron. Matthew 25, Jesus says that a greedy Christian is an oxymoron. And Paul clearly reiterates that a racist Christian is an oxymoron. Every church he planted, including this church in Ephesus, was informed by Romans 1.16. A lot of us know this. We love it. If you ever went through evangelism training, for, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation. Right? You have that part memorized, right? For who? Not just the Jew, but for the Gentile as well. See, anytime Paul would go into a new town... He would say, where's the synagogue? I want to go talk to my brothers and sisters. I, I want to tell them, you know, we got a lot of things right, but we got a lot of things wrong. And the good news is this, I got to tell my brothers and sisters. Acts chapter 17 and 19, right? Then he, then he comes back in Acts chapter 17, and he, and he says, where are the Gentiles? And they said, up there on Mars Hill. You, you go up there, there's an unknown God. There, you'll, you'll, you'll find some Gentiles up there. And he's like, good, I got to tell them they're in. And he goes up there. And some of them come to salvation. And now you have Jews that have come to salvation and Gentiles that come to salvation. And guess what? we got a problem. These two people don't like each other. So what's Paul going to do? If he would have followed the church growth movement of the late 1900s, Right? He would have set a church up on the east side and another church on the west side. And that would have been very pragmatic but deeply unchristian. Paul says we're not going to do that. We have but one God and one body. There's no walls. Amen? Verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. goes on by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That he might create in himself, what? One new man. Amen. In place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That is good news. Two chapters later, Ephesians 4 one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The cross served as a sledgehammer. Destroying the walls that divided us in hostility. And the church, unfortunately, has a history of rebuilding walls that the cross had already destroyed. But Jesus died to present to his father one new man. Paul could have used a lot of different words in this place, right? To, to describe the word new, he, he chose the word he could have chosen the word "neos." He did not. "Neos" would be like the uh, would be like the new Dodge Ram fifteen hundred, right? That's what "neos" would be, or or the the new tablet that just came out. He didn't choose the word "neos." He chose the word "kynos." "Kynos." This is something that, that related more to invention. It was groundbreaking. People have never seen it before, right? So, so if Neos is, is the new Ram truck, Kynos is the Model T. If Neos is, is the, the new tablet, then Kynos is the first ever computer. It is groundbreaking. It is mind-blowing. No one's ever seen it before. This is how Paul describes the multi-ethnic church in our world. Kynos. It's never been seen before. It's mind-blowing. The church isn't blowing minds in the way that it should. Amen? See, Paul tethered ethnic, ethnic unity to the cross because if it were not tied to the gospel, Christians would just assume that racial and ethnic unity were electives. Social issues alone. That love of neighbor is, is some fringe, in, uh, fringe issue, but love and peace are central to the gospel. We're almost done. And he came and he preached peace to all who are far off. And peace, that same peace, the ones that were already near. For through him both have access to one spirit to the Father. In him you are also being built together. That's what's happening. We're bringing together all kinds of different groups of people. This doesn't have to just be other colors, right? This can be different facets of a family. This can be disagreements between friends, He's bringing them together, building us together to be a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. Right? You guys remember that today is Pentecost. Today we celebrate Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost? All kinds of different gibberish that is going on. We call it speaking in tongues. I think it's more speaking in ears. Right? Because the the, the guys, the apostles, were speaking all in their native tongue. But what was happening? They weren't. They weren't saying things in their native language is that something happened where their ears were transformed and they were able to hear what the apostles were saying in their language and hearing it in in their own. So part of the evidence of the Holy Spirit is the fact that you can hear what other people are saying. Do you know what I mean? That you can actually understand what somebody from another race is trying to tell you, it's part of the evidence of the Holy Spirit. He is the love of God. Jesus says after the resurrection, peace I give you. Peace I give you. And then right after that, he follows it up with, go forgive people. Jack Lemon knew I was talking about this. He sent me a, a little podcast that talked about Ubuntu. Ubuntu. It's a phrase in South Africa that had been around for a long time but probably popularized after the apartheid. Desmond Tutu, who's a very well-known pastor out of South Africa, kind of summarizes the term abutu like this. We are different so that we can know our need for one another. For no one is ultimately self-sufficient. By the way, this came out of his book, No Future Without Forgiveness. Great title, great read. He goes on, The completely self-sufficient person would be subhuman. Also learned this week, That there was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission of 1995 in South Africa, which consisted of a series of gatherings. And in these meetings, it gave people that attended the opportunity to express regret in failing to prevent human rights violations and to demonstrate their commitment to reconciliation. So they would have these public gatherings. And and in them, it also gave guilty whites the opportunity to confess their sins and atrocities of their black brothers and sisters. Those stories, those confessions, are nothing short of the good news. One such story in a crowd of about 300 people. A white cop stood up and confessed that during apartheid, that he had come in to this woman's house black woman's house, and he and some other officers bound her husband up, poured gas on him, and set him on fire, and made her watch as he screamed to his death. Two months later, same officer came back to the same house and did the same thing to her only child, a son. And he stood up and confessed. These are my atrocities, of which I am ashamed. Much like this, the gathering was hushed. And all eyes shifted to this woman. What would she do? Gathering what strength that she had left, she stood up and said, sir, You've taken the love of my life and my only child. You have wronged me and are in my debt. I'm a relatively young woman with a lot of love yet to give, so I ask you: if you would be so kind, would you come to my home once a week and allow me to cook for you? And when you come, will you bring your laundry and allow me? to clean for you I forgive you not a sound was made until a small group of black teenagers black teenage boys started singing that old song written by a slave trader amazing grace Cross is the only answer to the, eradic- to the eradication of hostility in our world, hostility in our country, hostility in our state, hostility in our city, hostility in our families. Jesus modeled self sacrificial love. It is the only genuine love. Love that looks like Calvary. It's vertical and it's horizontal. So I ask where is there hostility in your heart? Where is there systemic hostility? Jonathan, I don't know exactly how to land the plane, so I'm going to invite you up. The band, do you want the band to come up now as well?
0: Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Um, We just want to end this morning. Clearly, there's there's, uh, only awkward transitions when there's these moments. But we felt like, as we talked and prayed about this, Nehemiah gave a great example of how to respond to these moments when he stood up and he heard about Jerusalem. And uh, he confessed his sin to the Lord. And he confessed his ancestors' sins to the Lord. And he admitted, he's like, my father and I myself, we've sinned. And I think the difficulty in this conversation is many of us feel, uh, we feel distant From this, and we feel um, the need to self justify ourselves. Say, well, I personally haven't participated in any of that. But the bottom line is, we live in a state that was founded on a wound. Like, literally, we built our state on top of a wound that's been festering. And Jeremiah calls out Israel, where God says, Listen, you've healed the wound superficially. And you've said, Peace, peace, where there is no peace. And so, just our little body, um, we want to respond. The way the Lord calls us to respond when there's been sin in a place. And that response is just repentance and humility. And so we want to spend some time here just at the end of the service. And I know we've gone long this morning, but it just feels necessary to not just wrap up shop and leave. And we still have communion, but we didn't want to take communion until we dealt with it. Because so the Bible says, like, listen, if you have a gift at your altar and there's something between you and your brother, leave it there and go be reconciled. Right? So be reconciled in your heart. And so this morning, I want to invite um, us to, to spend just a few moments in prayer. Um, and then once we, once we spend some moments there singing this song, I'll come back up and I'll invite you to take communion. And uh, the kiddos will come back in um, uh, after communion. So if you would, I just felt the Lord say we need to like match our heart posture with our body. So if you can, I know some of the ladies here are are dressed for church so you can't, but if you can kneel, would you do that right now? Would you just take a posture of kneeling? If you want to come to the altar and pray, I just want to invite you up here as well. And confession is just agreement. It's just agreement with God that something happened that was wrong. It's evil, evil, So would you just allow the Holy Spirit to bring prayer out of your heart right now? And so, Father God, before you this morning, we confess the evil of racism, of racial hatred, of hostility between the races in our state, in our city, very likely in this neighborhood, and likely, Lord, in this very building. So we confess it to you. for the wrongs done for the injustice we just need your help Jesus so we repent Lord we want to stop in our tracks and we want to turn around Jesus for the sins of the church we confess and we repent this morning that the church has been as divided as the world Come and would you tear down the walls of hostility in the church? Jesus, in our own hearts, if we have been engaged in racism, in prejudice, Lord, in jokes that were made about other people at their expense, Lord, would you forgive us? We confess those are wrong, they're evil. Friends, this morning our hearts cry as a church is that God would entrust us with revival, we want revival. The Lord says, who can ascend my holy hill? Who can come into my dwelling place? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart. So Jesus, we just ask you right now to come and wash us clean. Come and cleanse, Lord, the stain of racism from our state. Cleanse it. Baptize us in the fire, Jesus. Cleanse our heart sin, Lord. Would you give us clean hands, Lord? Would you give us pure hearts? So we're going to sing these words, and I just invite you just to stay in this posture. We're just going to let this song...